0: Hello and welcome to the liturgical year on the Restoration Radio Network. Today, two major feasts of the month of October are going to be explored. First, we're going to be discussing the Feast of the Little Flower, St. Therese of Lisieux. And we're going to learn that she really is a saint, not just for her own time, but really for all time. We'll find out a little bit about her life, some of uh, the elements of the the liturgy used uh, for the Mass of her feast day. And... Afterwards, we're going to approach probably what is one of the greatest Marian devotions, the the Feast of the Most Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which has an absolutely fascinating history. Um, It's a a history lesson um, in in and of itself. But in addition to the extensive history of of the devotion, its origins and and, and how the rosary was actually used, not only as as a spiritual tool, but as a spiritual weapon we're going to look at actually how to pray the rosary with, with devotion so that the, the prayers are not just empty, but they're actually uh, of benefit to one's spiritual life. My name is Joshua Guncher. I'm joined today, as always, by Father Charles McGuire of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Father, thank you for joining us again. Good to be here again finally, Mr. Guncher. It's nice to, it's nice to be back. Father, as I said uh, just a moment ago, uh, and in fact it, the day we're recording the show is, is is actually the feast of, of saints Therese of Lisieux. Um, you know, this is this is a saint who really lived in 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 somewhat of obscurity for uh most of her life um and i think she's she tends to be portrayed in in a way that is um it's it's all about her smile there's this, it's it's all um it's all surface and 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 the the world would tend to look at her as being kind of a, a sweet, sentimental saint. And I, I got the impression before we started the show that that one of the goals that you have it, just in the show here and, and, and in general is, is to combat this idea that uh, that St. Therese is, I think you called it a sugary saint. And give me an idea of what you mean by sugary saint. Well, sugary, sentimental,
1: ooey gooey it's all about love. And uh, when you read her autobiography, you read about the baby Jesus and how she liked to make him happy, all of her smiles, the comparison of two different flowers, and and all that poetic uh, stuff, you might say. And uh, kind of since we live in that sentimental world, we tend to look at her as simply that, a sentimental saint and nothing more. And that's why a lot of people are, I think, men in particular are put off by devotion to a saint called the little flower. flower, But if you really stop and penetrate to the depth of her life and and, uh, her devotions, why she made these comparisons uh, to the flower or compared herself to a ball in the hands of baby Jesus, that sort of thing, it's a really manly, courageous devotion. And her life, Bespeaks fortitude and courage and bravery, and so you get a lot of that. Her favorite saints were, you know, Saint Joan of Arc, for example. She wanted to be a, a soldier fighting in Christ's army, and all of that. But it's important not to make your devotions to become sugary and full of feeling something that makes you feel good. So that's a, a modern tendency, especially in the Novus Ordo world. You want to get over that. Um, what should we be feeling? I mean, in terms of just as a practical
0: question, Father. I mean, what are we? What are we looking for in a devotion? If it's not feel good, oh, there's flowers and and the, and, and like you, you mentioned, being a ball in the in the hands of, the, of, of of the baby Jesus. I mean, what should we? If if it's not sentiment, what should we be looking for in our in our devotion? Not only to Saint Therese, but really to any saint.
1: Oh, good question. I would say it's Bishop Sandborn always taught us in seminary that the will is a cold, cold thing. You don't feel with your will. And any devotion should lead you to serve God more, which requires the willpower, not the feelings. Feelings are passing, they change. And so you can't can't have a devotion based on something that changes. One day you like St. Therese, or one day you like the Sacred Heart devotion, and then the next day you don't. So you want something that's going to establish you in the spiritual life, something that's going to urge you forward, push you on, make you more and more holy, which, um, you know, is only done by that will, the willpower. Uh, of course, above all, accompanied by the grace of God. So that's what you're looking for in, in a devotion, any
0: devotion that you choose. And based on what what I know about St. Therese and what, what, what you said already, I mean, it sounds like her life was actually it wasn't just the ball in the hands of the child Jesus. It, it wasn't just syrupy. I mean, it sounds like her life is a model for what devotion is supposed to be. Not only devotion to her, but it actually gives us somewhat of an idea of, of, of how to, uh, to set up our, our, our devotions uh, really to any saint. Maybe it'd be a good place just to find out a little bit more about St. Therese. I mean, some, mm-hmm. some, some background um, on, on her
1: life. I mean, Yes, I, I want to, before going into her life though, one other thing to keep in mind is, is how God raises up saints and devotions for all times. St. Athanasius came at a time when he was needed, St. Dominic at a time when he was needed, the same with all of them. St. Charles Borromeo came at a time when the clergy needed a reform. He came, helped in the establishment of seminaries to train priests, different things like that. And St. Therese came at a time when, especially we Americans, we're very practical people. But when it comes to the spiritual life, we're totally impractical, totally. That is, our buildings are built not for beauty, but but for practice, practical purposes. And so they're not necessarily beautiful at all. How would you describe them? Well, block style, no beauty to them whatsoever. The most beautiful buildings you'll find is the bank. You know, in any city, the, usually it's the, the tallest and the most beautiful is the bank, uh, not the church. The church is the last thing that you, you'd see, one of the last things. But in any case, when it comes to spiritual life, we're, we're totally impractical. We rely too much on ourselves and think that we have to do great things. And St. Therese teaches us that no, you don't have to do great things, you do the small things well with God's grace. And that's really, I think, why St. Therese came along when she did. And to confirm that, the Holy Ghost, working through the church, raised her up to the sainthood much more quickly than for most saints. It was usually it would be at least 50 years before you would think of canonizing a saint. She was in an in, I think it was 25 years or so, she was already a saint, and that uh, that was simply to confirm the fact that of uh, to confirm her spirituality and that we don't need great things, and so her life is all about that. So, you get these um devotions of hers, she imagined herself as a ball in the hand of, of the infant Jesus, but. Again, like I said, you penetrate into it and realize why. Okay, well, the baby sometimes will throw the ball in, up and down and bounce him. A sign of how our Lord sometimes gives us hard times. Maybe sometimes he'll throw us in a corner and forget about us. Other times he might, like a kid will do, pierce it and flatten it. And so he'll do to the soul many times. So all that was more or less describing how our Lord treats the soul and how, as the ball, you don't complain. You just go along with whatever the owner does. So anyway, a little about her. She was, as I said, quickly raised to canonization. In fact, the uh, prefect of the Sacred Congregation of Rites was Cardinal Vico. He, He actually said that we have to hurry up and raise this little saint to the altars Otherwise, will be anticipated by the voice of the people. It was 12 years after she died. There were there was an average of 50 letters a day coming to Rome about the miracles that she worked, the prayers that were answered. 50 letters a day, and this after. was at a
0: time when it wasn't the the, the postal postal system was 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 fairly uh, maybe not new, but uh, FedEx wasn't overnighting uh, these
1: <laughs> things. I mean, it, it, this was something that that, that cost and, and took time. It did quite a while. So that's that's a good uh, thought there too. Um, but yeah, so she was she was born in France, of course. In, oh, pardon my uh, pronunciation. I believe it was pronounced Alphonse, and uh, she was born and baptized there, and then they moved. To Lisieux when she was still just a little child, and they say that she had you know the typical vices or inclinations of a melancholic soul the um you know a little bit of the the vanity the maybe the fear of being humiliated, the um, stubbornness stubborn will and very sensitive. She was a really sensitive, especially after her mother died. That's when she really noticed it. She would cry very easily, and it'd be hard for her to stop and get over those moves. In any case, after her mother died, she got very sick. Actually, the the doctors feared that she would die. She began having hallucinations. She's still a little girl at this point. Still a little girl. I think she was. Oh, she it was. Four, five, six. She was young in any case. I'm not sure of her exact age, but very young. And the doctors feared for her death. And she was actually cured when her father was out of the house. And her sisters were all around her bed praying as she was hallucinating. And as they were praying to Our Lady, the statue that was on a stand near her bed smiled at her and cured her. And that statue you can see, actually, in Lisieux, where St. Therese's body is. Um, But the statue smiled at her, and that's the small devotion of Our Lady of the Smile, Hmm. um, which is a beautiful devotion. I like it very much. So she was cured, and of course, when she became a little older, she was a teenager. She wanted to enter the convent, and she had all sorts of obstacles. She was much too young to enter the convent, the superiors were against her entering. The bishop was against her entering. And so she had recourse to the Pope. And everyone knows the story of, of that. She went to the Pope. She wasn't supposed to speak. But bold as she was, she, uh, in a good sense, that's how we have to be in the spiritual life, is be bold and brave, courageous. And so she did. She went, knelt before the pontiff, Leo Thirteenth and asked him to permit that she might enter Carmel. And the, the answer was very painful to her, but at the same time, I think, deep down, consoling me. He said, if it's the will of God, it'll happen. And that's, that's exactly what happened. She was able to enter the convent at 15 years of age. But there she was, you might say, in some respects, treated as a child. She was always in trouble for being too slow in her chores, not doing them well enough, leaving cobwebs or dust in different places, so she was always getting scolded. Was fifteen a, a a young age to be in in a in a convent at that point? Very young, I believe, somewhere around the age of twenty-ish. I don't remember the exact age, but twenty-ish was the age when most people would be permitted to enter the convent life. So she was was in fact younger than the others who were there. Oh yes, okay. much much younger. They, of course, in the convent range range from all ages, twenty. To 90. So it's it's truly a community life of people that have dedicated their lives to the religious life and their vows. So she was treated as a child. She was assigned to take care of one of the older nuns who had trouble getting around, had trouble because of arthritis. She couldn't break up her bread. And she was accused of going too fast or too slow because she was too young. So she had all these normal crosses that any, any teenage kid would have. Uh, being scolded for all those little things. So that's, that's like the story of her life. Not huge crosses necessarily, just small crosses that she bore with extreme patience and resignation. Other very popular examples would be when she'd do laundry in the convent and the nun next to her would splash her with water. And she would be tempted to say things to correct this other nun. And she realized, nope, that's the sacrifice that our Lord wants of me at this moment. And so she would encourage herself with pious thoughts and even humorous thoughts at times to get her through those. Or the little cross that she had, the nun sitting behind her in meditation would always rattle her rosary beads against the pew.
0: Just accidentally or you, would not, she wasn't doing it purposely or was she,
1: you, did she think she was doing it purposely? I don't think so. No, she, I, she gave, uh, she would always assume that someone is in, was in good faith. Okay. But that really annoyed her very much. And so her, her remedy was a simple one. She made herself listen to it. And until it became to her like, you might say, like the, the voice of the angel singing, it became a pleasant sound some other crosses that she had, she fell asleep frequently in her meditation, morning meditation. She was so tired, she didn't sleep well sometimes, and she would fall asleep. And she encouraged herself by saying, well, I'm trying my best, but just like as a little child is just as pleasing to his parents whether he's awake or asleep, so I must be to our Lord. Whether I'm awake or asleep, I must be... Pleasing to our Lord, because I'm trying my best. She also, surprisingly, so you see the human aspect of the saints. She, naturally speaking, had a hard time with the rosary. It wasn't one of her favorite devotions. She's always said it. Faithfully, she said it. Which also gives us an impression of her spirit of sacrifice. But it's hard for her to say wasn't, naturally speaking, she didn't like to say it, um, but she she always did, was very faithful, as I said, and that, that became one of her strong points in her spiritual life. Just as an aside, Father,
0: I know we're going to be talking about the rosary a little later, but it's certainly, based on, on St. Therese's example, it's certainly possible to say a rosary with profit, even if one doesn't
1: say it with ease. Exactly. In fact... Oftentimes, it becomes more pleasing in the sight of God, and more pleasing in Our Lady's sight, because we add to the value of the prayer, the value of sacrifice. And I often tell people, when they're distracted in prayers, to turn the distraction into a prayer. So if you're distracted by worries, simply make an act of confidence, something like that. Or find out in your mystery, for instance, the rosary. We'll talk about this, as you said. But think, for instance, how did our Lord practice confidence? As you're meditating on the the first mystery of the the sorrowful mysteries, our Lord in the agony of the garden and his his confidence in the face of suffering. How he went out courageously to meet his enemies. But yes, it becomes oftentimes more meritorious when we remember to unite sacrifice to prayer. Don't allow ourselves to be distracted, but keep fighting against it and persevere. Um, And so St. Therese always did. Then um, towards the end of her life, that's when her crosses became more severe. She was entering into the unitive state, which is the highest state of the spiritual life, when our will becomes one with our Lord's in everything. She came down with tuberculosis, and would often cough up blood. In fact, she was so united to our Lord's will at that point that the first time she coughed up blood, it was between Holy Thursday and Good Friday. She rejoiced. She realized she was coming close to her death, and she rejoiced at that fact, and in fact was very excited when in the morning she woke up and, and saw the blood. That's the, the life of a saint when they've reached the unitive
0: stage. And this wasn't put on. I mean, this it wasn't... I think I should be rejoicing. That would be the right thing to do, so I'm going to rejoice. This was She had reached that point at which this was simply her actual response.
1: Right. No, you and I, we would have to convince ourselves that this is, we should rejoice, we should bear our cross. We still have to convince ourselves. But the saints, towards the end of their life, they were so perfect that it was almost impossible for them not to be united. And fully rejoice in the will of God. Whatever sufferings came. That was the perfection of the saint. That was only after long years of of struggle. So she was able to do that. Finally. But it was only by building up her courage by these small sacrifices. The laundry. The water being splashed on her. Saying nothing. Going past her sister's room when she really wanted to stop and talk to her. Little mortifications. That's what gives us strength. And builds up our strength of will to actually one day be able to rejoice in suffering. We have to keep in mind too her humiliation when she was diagnosed with this this disease, tuberculosis. It was in those days. It was something like leprosy in the Old Testament or lice today. It was very humiliating. It was more for in the lower class so at first they didn't want to make it public that she had this sickness and then eventually they they were forced to but it was it was a terrible humiliation for her it would be like many of us as i said having to admit that we had lice or you know scabies or or something like that very humiliating and of course she she bore it without any any sort of complaint whatsoever, just uniting her humiliations with our lords and offering them up. But at this time, as if that's not enough, when we get sick or we have pain, any other little cross that comes our way make, puts us on edge, makes us moody. But she had not just the little crosses at this point. She had all the crosses that came to a soul that was in the unit of stages. So she had terrible temptations against the faith that were so vivid that they were they really caused her to struggle she would continuously make acts of faith that heaven existed that was her temptation that heaven did not exist that she would die and go into nothing that the world of nothingness that there was no reward waiting for her and it seemed to her like the devil was mocking her with that that all you're doing is in vain, and she continuously made the act of faith, and at this time she was writing poetry. She was famous for her poetry in the convent, and she would write poems about heaven. So much so that none of the other sisters knew the temptations against the faith that she was having because these poems were so sublime. So she used these poems as as almost like a spiritual tool? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's funny
0: that you were talking earlier about the about Saint Therese being a saint, really a saint for all, for all times, not just for her day. Though she came at the, the in the right place at the right time, there may be other saints who experienced temptations against the faith in in a, in a similar way. That um, when I die, that's it. It wasn't. It's not just that. Well, I I believe in this, but not in that. It's that I die, and this is all in vain. This is all a fake. When I think about what one hears out in the world today, that as soon as you close your eyes, as soon as you breathe your last and your heart stops, that's it, the end, game over. And there's really no, there's no reason to live a moral life. There's no reason to believe in anything because when life is over, that's it. It, it sounds as though we even now have her as an example of, of someone who, look, how, how many times do you hear someone say, I can't believe you believe that? Mm-hmm. Of course, it's usually someone who believes in aliens or believes in something <laughs> else. But uh, you know, I, I I can't believe that you would believe in that. It's over and done with when when you die, and that's it. There's nothing. And to have a saint who experienced that exact temptation against against the faith that all was in vain, mm-hmm. and that there was nothing after you died. I mean, that's that's a it should be heartening for any of us who have had to deal with that type of that, that type of emptiness, the type of um, Really, I mean it's it's a statement of 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 despair.
1: It really is. And it was worse, I would say, in the case of St. Therese, because she was religious. She was a nun. Someone like yourself or or some other lay person might have that temptation. But at the same time, they can have legitimate pleasures in the world. Whereas in the religious life, especially in a place like Carmel, that's contemplative your whole world is surround it revolves around the spiritual life everything you do from morning to night is only that there are no legitimate worldly pleasures but one has to surmise them i mean this is this is very clearly
0: i mean if there were words, if the outside world wasn't invading her um her contemplative life i mean this is very clearly a a, a, a temptation that's that's coming from where all temptations come from mm-hmm. I mean. I, it, it's, it's easy to point a finger at the world when you when you you live in it. It's you're not surprised that you hear these things and and they're used as the, the source of a temptation in your day-to-day. But not to be in the world and experience, and experience it, it strikes me as is making that even even clearer as a as a temptation. I mean, I know that there are some times where someone might experience it. It might not even be a temptation. there's something, you know, it might say on a billboard, when you die, that's it, game over. And you read it and you think, no, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the time where you're considering what it says and you're reacting to it is not really a temptation. It's, you're just evaluating. Mm-hmm. She didn't even have that. I mean, it's 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 not that there's there was there was no no clear place where that came from except from the place where where all temptations originate. So, mm-hmm.
1: um, yes, but it's a it's a true purification before you enter into the just quickly a spiritual life lesson when you're entering from the first to the second state of the spiritual life your main temptations are the purpose of them is to get yourself over the inclination of the senses you know to to eat too much for example so you the common temptations when you're entering into the second life uh, stage of the spiritual life you're Common temptations are to impatience and to impurity because they are, they have to do with the senses. Whereas when you're going from the second into the third, the unitive state, the highest degree of perfection, your temptations are more spiritual. Temptations against faith, temptations against hope. And so the saints went through that and they were so vivid. They're more vivid than the ordinary day-to-day temptations that you and I might have. Against the faith or against hope, uh, discouragement—they were extremely violent and extremely vivid, and didn't just weren't just passing. They were very much lasting. So this was this was what she went through. She continued to make her acts of faith to write her poems as a tool, and not have anybody know, and not have anybody know. There were no complaints ever. Here, even though I found this interesting, I didn't know this till. Uh, maybe a couple of years ago, she admitted, though not in a complaining way, but just sort of objectively, that because of all of her trials at this time, she admitted that she understood how, or rather she said, if she did not have the faith, she would have committed suicide. These temptations were so violent. That coming from a saint, if she didn't have the faith, that's what she would have done. So that that tells you, with what patience she endured this so going back to what we said at the beginning of the show she was no sugary saint she was extremely courageous and in everything that she did throughout her whole spiritual life she never denied our lord anything that he asked even the tiniest sacrifice nothing and i challenge any any man who thinks he's brave and strong, to practice devotion to this this little saint, to imitate her, to imitate her virtues, and see how far you get. That's, I mean, that's a challenge. Her imitation of her is, is not something sugary, but at the same time, we should not get discouraged by imitation of these saints because she, more than anything, perhaps more than any other saint, at least in my opinion, brings us back to the simplicity of the Gospels. It's the love of God. Love makes all things easy. If you love somebody, you're going to do something good for them. And so in her devotion, it's as if she saw a person there before her that she was doing everything for. Whereas in our spiritual life, we kind of, God is someone distant, you never see abstracted him away. Yeah, exactly. For her, he was a person. And that made it all the more easy to make these sacrifices. So the simplicity with which she acted was was great. Really great. And that's how we need to approach the spiritual life. It's not complicated. It's difficult. It's not complicated. And you just do your ordinary duties and do them well. And that is what the Holy Ghost, by by having her canonized and canonized so quickly after her death, that's what he w- wants to teach us. It's not about great deeds. It's about small deeds done for love of God, for a higher motive.
0: Turning every man into a hero. I mean, it's if her lesson it is, at least in in small part, that the the acts of our everyday life done well are means of sanctification I mean, it really we're we're not going to to attend to plague victims on a daily basis we're not all called to give our lives in martyrdom we're not all being cast into cauldrons of boiling oil or grilled on a gridiron i mean all of us have to at some point deal with the crying child you know whether they're sitting next to you in a pew or in front of you in a pew all of us have to deal with the, the traffic or um uh, the person with whom uh, whom one works or whatever it happens to be i mean if 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 we can take our small trials and turn them to our spiritual good, I mean I don't see how there's a single person who doesn't have to deal with these things, lay or religious alike,
1: exactly. and the thing to remember is many times you don't need to perform the penances of the curia of ours, eat boiling potatoes, and you know sleep for an hour to a night. You don't need to do that to get to heaven. They're good penances for some people. Mm-hmm. But there's enough penance in your daily life that if you... And your just your daily duties, going to work, raising a family, saying your prayers, those are duties that are also penances. And if you do them for the love of God, not with a feeling of love necessarily, but you do them to please Him and not yourself, then... You're going to be a saint. And that truly is the lesson. So all you have to do is do your duties to God, to man, to yourself, your duties of state and life, and for love of God. That's enough to make anybody, anybody a saint.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the liturgical year on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Joshua Guntra. I'm joined by Father Charles McGuire of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Uh, today, we've just finished discussing uh, the little flower, St. Teresa Vizier, whose feast day is in the month of October. In fact, it's it's today, the day on which we're, we're recording the show. Uh, we're actually going to be speaking about the uh, feast of the Most Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary in just a moment. But before that, we just wanted to remind you that the liturgical year is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. And all rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. But permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Father, coming up and and one of the the key feasts in the month of October um, is that of the Most Holy Rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, this is in terms of uh, the Latin right. This is a, uh, this is a ubiquitous um, devotion and, um, even for non-Catholics, when they think, well, what, what do Catholics do? I think I remember reading a, uh, um, a rather unfortunate quote by uh, the American president, John Adams, uh, who, who happened into a, a Catholic church at one point. And he, he didn't have enough bad things to say about, the, uh, about uh, what, what he saw. But I think he mentioned, um, even he is someone who had no love for, for, for the faith, mentioned uh, the beads, Huh. And uh, it seems to be something which um, most who aren't Catholics uh, would identify as being something that identifies Catholics. It's, it's a mark. I mean, sadly, sometimes it, it tends to be a mark only in the uh, hung around the rearview mirror of, of a car. But um,
1: well, well, in fact, to interject, I remember hearing a story a few years ago. I think Bishop Dolan told it. To me, Uh, Oh, I'm not sure who told me, but in any case, one of the Mexican priests was going through the airport and one of the security guards or someone was questioning him and asking him, basically didn't really believe or was just double checking that he truly was a priest and not just putting on a disguise and all of that stuff. The question, the proof for this security guard was in the answer to a question or a, a command I should say, show me your beads. <laughs> and the priest pulled out his beads and that was enough proof for him. It was perfect, it was perfect. Every Catholic should have his rosary. The feast itself,
0: Father, I mean, it, we were talking about um, you know, military police in an airport uh, demanding the rosary as a, as a sign of, actually, I mean, I guess as a sign of, of, of faith and fidelity to what uh, Father claimed his occupation was. Um, I think that the, the rosary has certainly become a, a sign of, of faith and fidelity to what our occupation is as Catholics, and uh, has long been that way. I mean, the, the rosary is it, it didn't just come out of nowhere. I mean it has it has an origin like all all, all devotions, great and small. It has a particularly uh, you know particularly uh, fascinating historical aspect, which again, like like our discussion of Saint Therese being a saint for our times, this is really a, this is a devotion that was a devotion that was for the time in which it, it, it originated. But it it has a, a very clear, and I think this is the beauty of Catholic devotions in general, it was perfect for the time in which it arose. It's been perfect throughout the history of the church. And it's particularly suited to us right now. And I don't think the rosary is, is any different in this regard. Tell us a little bit about where does the
1: rosary come from? Simple answer is it comes from heaven. Uh, directly from heaven, everything about it comes uh, comes from from heaven, from the individual prayers to the devotion of the rosary itself. In terms of uh, in terms of the rosary, just a little background. I,
0: I know most of our listeners have um, have probably seen one and have probably you know used one. If you haven't, start patting your pockets and making sure you've got one nearby. But um, let's just talk structurally. About the rosary, um, you know, there there are, uh, we, we've got three sets of mysteries, the joyful, the sorrowful, and the glorious. Mm-hmm. And within each of those third parts of the rosary, which is, consists of 15 decades, we have 10 Hail Marys in each one. So we end up with 150. I know there are others that have been added on over time, but the mainstay of the rosary's prayer uh, is the one hundred fifty. Hail Mary's. I mean, what is the, you get a number like 150, you think, well, that's a nice round number. Why, why do we have such a round number? What is the point of, of, of that number in this?
1: Well, because earlier on, the Catholics had a devotion to reading the Psalter. The priests do it to this day. There are 150 Psalms that the priest reads throughout the week in his, in his breviary, the divine office. But back in those days, there were no printing presses, so not every home had a a Bible, like as they do today, or most should have. They didn't. And then most of them, a lot of the people, especially in the peasant classes, couldn't read, so it was no use anyway to have a Bible for many of them. So they would replace it with what we call the Psalter of Our Lady or the Rosary. 150 Hail Marys, coinciding with the 150 Psalms of King David. So it was a beautiful thing. And those who couldn't recite the Psalms would recite the, the full rosary, all 15 decades, which was a, a very beautiful devotion, especially when it, uh, well, I won't say especially when it came out. It really is a beautiful devotion and extremely powerful. And as you said, particularly useful for our day. So this is like the, the layman shorthand
0: for the breviary, you know, maybe, I mean, if it, if it was for practical reasons you couldn't read, you didn't have a Bible, you didn't have a Psalter, you didn't have something where you could even read 150 Psalms, this is your way of saying that. Or maybe you just simply, you were in the fields all day and you didn't have time or even the ability to read, so you would spend your time saying
1: these. It's sort of a, a layman shorthand for, for what, the, what the priest does. Exactly. Exactly, and that's that's what it was made to be. And remember, too, about one thing about the rosary is, in its efficacy, it's right there behind the divine office. You have the most powerful prayer, of course, is the Holy Mass. Right after that is the divine office that the priest says. It's sort of an extension of the Mass, the breviary is. But then, right after that, you have... The Holy Rosary, no, your is, extension of the breviary, exactly. So, though it is actually after Mass in the Divine Office, the most powerful prayer, and it is for the layperson's prayer, it is the most powerful prayer, number one on the list for the layman. Um, and so, we should truly, truly have that devotion. But that, in a nutshell, is is the symbolism of or the practicality of the hundred and fifty Hail Marys. So, I mean, this is this is a
0: uh... A devotion we have a lot of devotions which don't have a thing associated with them you know I mean the sign of a cross let's say without holy water uh, disappears as soon as you are done with it the holy water dries up um, you know but the in terms of devotions with a um, with a device I mean this is this is not just a cord this is not just a candle. This is not just holy water where it's one thing, and not to diminish the the importance or the the efficacy of of, of devotion when practiced with those those other things, uh, but there, the, this has parts to it. Quite literally, it has parts. I mean, it it, it can come apart. I mean, I, I don't I don't know about you, Father, but we've had a number of uh, broken rosaries in the house recently, and and boy, you know what it happens. I mean, there's a, every one of those beads is. Uh, you, you wonder how many times a Hail Mary has been prayed on them. Um, moving to sort of historical aspect, I mean, we we tend to think of the Rosary as just simply a. Well, this is uh, this is a spiritual tool. This is something which, like any other devotion, um, is is a is a is a tool in the spiritual toolbox which, you know, some people are better when they use a hammer. Some people are better when they use a screwdriver. Some people are better when they use a wrench. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, I happen to really like the same Philomena cord, and I have a devotion to her, but I always find that, uh, you know, praying in the rosary, it's so long father. I mean, it takes so long to pray. Um, you know, we hear, we hear compl- I mean, I'm, I'm not guilty of having those moments where it, it seems long. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry, excuse me. I'm, I'm not uh, innocent of of having those moments. I certainly am guilty of them. But in terms of uh, how this spiritual tool was put to use, it's it's not just something that was put to use in in individuals' lives. It's not something that was just put to use amongst uh, the clergy and the religious. I mean, this went into the hands of the laymen, and it wasn't just used for their individual salvation. Though that it is certainly it is certainly served that purpose. I mean. We've been, we've been hinting at this, this, this grand historical novel that, 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 that stands behind the rosary. And I want you just to set the stage for us to understand how this was actually used as a, as a, as a weapon of war,
1: really. Well, yeah, I want to, getting to that point, I remember reading in a, in a book by Abbot Marmion, he compared it to the story of David and Goliath, so it's a true weapon, just sort of making this analogy that Goliath symbolized all evil, heresy, impurity, sins of all sort that exist. So everything evil symbolized by Goliath. And here you have David, Istanbul shepherd boy, who has no knowledge of war, no strength, certainly not when compared to someone like Goliath who has... Is a seasoned veteran of war, stands head and shoulders, if not full bodies, above everyone else. He was literally a giant of a man, so much so that when he called out to the Jewish army, challenging someone to come out and fight him, nobody, even with all of their knowledge and, and practice in war, nobody would go and meet him. But David did, a shepherd boy, and came. Even the armor that was originally put on David was too heavy for him to carry. So he took it off. He went out with a few stones and a slingshot, and he went out and he defeated the giants. So Abbot Marvian makes this comparison to the rosary that the rosary is our weapon. It's a weak thing. seems like a little petty devotion on the surface. But we see how God chooses it to work wonders. And each Hail Mary that we say, we're flinging another stone at the forehead of the giant. Defeating whatever evil it is. And so it's really, really is a devotion that conquers heresy. That's like it's, you might say it's number one importance. It was instituted at a time when heresy was prevalent, the Albigensian heresies. The Albigensians came at, a, at in, the time, in the middle ages, I believe. They believed all sorts of, of weird, crazy things, but the worst of it being that Christ was not God. And Saint Dominic preached as he wanted. He could preach all day to these people and it, it would do nothing. He would go and correct them. It would do nothing. He would pray. He would do penances. And these people were so hard-hearted and so steeped in their heresy that they, um, they would not convert. So he went off to the woods one day to do penance and to pray for these people. And then it says, St. Louis de Montfort writes about it. He says that he fell into a coma and Our Lady appeared to him and asked him. And it's interesting, Our Lady here refers to it as a weapon and says asks him do you know what weapon you need to use to fight against this heresy and then she said commanded him to go and preach the holy rosary in this way you will convert these people so he did right away he woke up as soon as he could he went into the cathedral i think it was in toulouse the it says that invisible angels came and rang the bells, announcing that a priest was there to preach. And so people came from all over the city to hear him preach. Heretics, Catholics, it didn't matter, they came. And when he climbed into the pulpit, it says a storm let loose. There was terrible thunder and lightning. The sun, it says, lost its light. The, the earthquake, it was really terrible. Everyone was scared out of their minds. But on top of it, there's a picture nearby in the church, an image of Our Lady. And Our Lady raised her arms three times, sort of calling down God's vengeance on the people if they didn't convert and didn't become devoted to her. So at that point, St. Dominic said a prayer. The storm ceased, and he began preaching on the rosary. And that was his first miracle of of conversion, you might say. Nearly everybody converted. So his second interesting story about his preaching is, it it occurred on the Feast of St. John the Evangelist. And he was at Notre Dame in Paris. I, I so wish I had known this before my trip to France, to Notre Dame, because it's so interesting that He was preparing to give a sermon there in the cathedral to theologians, doctors, higher-up clergy, very intelligent men. So he was preparing, not out of vanity, but he was preparing a sermon that was really up to their level. And then as he was preparing it at the altar behind the main altar of the church, Our Lady appeared to him and said, Dominic, What you're going to say in your sermon is very good, but I want you to give this sermon. Handed him a book. He sat there and read this sermon over, tried to memorize it, prayed over it until he understood it. Closed the book, handed it back, and got up into the pulpit. Made no mention of St. John except that he was the guardian of Our Lady. Was privileged to have that duty. But otherwise, he told the people... These theologians and higher-ups, intelligent men, I'm not going to give you your usual type of sermon. Then he preached as if you were preaching to children, and explained the Hail Mary, which really impressed all of those people, because obviously the sermon was directly from Our Lady, of course. But it worked. It worked. Many, you might say, I hesitate to use the word miracle because it's used so loosely nowadays. But workings of grace in the souls of those people that were there and spreading of devotion to the rosary. Um, some other stories about the rosary, though. Power. Well, continuing with this, the, the obviously the Albigensian heresy was conquered by means of this rosary. Also, devils were cast out. I don't want to get off the subject of the victory over heresy too much, but demons were cast out. There's several stories of that power of the rosary over the demons. One man brought his son who had 15,000 demons in him, in this, this boy, he brought him to St. Dominic and St. Dominic ordered all the people that were standing by to pray the rosary at each hail Mary. it was something like a hundred or a thousand, whatever it was, demons were kicked out of this boy's soul until at the, the 150th Hail Mary, the last ones were expelled. So talking about the power of, of the rosary uh, over all sorts of evil, it's truly a powerful thing. Um, there's, there's several stories like that. Oh, An interesting story I came across yesterday was about a Jew, of all things. He was fighting in one of the world wars. Bishop Sheen tells this story. He was fighting in one of the world wars, and he's stuck in the trenches with some other soldiers. And all of a sudden, a shell comes in, kills the four men that he was with. He survives, picks up one of their rosaries, and starts praying. He'd, He'd memorized the prayer. He'd heard it so much he must have been with some very devout soldiers but he memorized the prayer and he started praying it asking for protection and as he was praying he received this inspiration get out of this trench so he did he went to the another trench and sure enough as soon as he made it to the second one a shell landed in that original trench and he continued to pray for protection he had another inspiration moved to a third trench And the second one was blown up. Four times that happened. And he continued to pray for protection. He survived the war, went to Bishop Sheen, was baptized a Catholic, and then not long after entered the seminary to become a priest. So even the Jews, who at the time of our Lord, our Lord Himself did not work the grace of conversion in them, the Rosary did. The Rosary did. That says a lot for the rosary, a whole lot. Uh, so that's that's sort of an encouragement to use it. But going back to its original purpose, the conquering of heresy, there's a beautiful. I always liked it. It's in Matins, the third third doctrine of Matins, I think it is, on the the feast of Our Lady. And there's this one antiphon that says, "Gaudete, Maria Virgo, rejoice, O Virgin Mary, for thou alone hast destroyed all heresies in the world. So you see the, the connection between the rosary and the times we live in. We live in a time of the, the worst trial of the, that the church has ever gone through with the Novus Ordo religion since the synthesis of all heresies, as Pius the X called it. It's done the most damage to souls, to society, and to the church in general. But we should remember that we still have our rosaries. We lost our churches, but we still have the faith, and we still have our beads. And if we're going to conquer this evil that has destroyed the world and the culture in which we live, it's going to be by means of the rosary. In fact, interesting that souls are won one by one, taken out of the Novus Ordo by means of the Rosary. Our Lady said, you know that famous quote, that at the end of time, something like this, at the towards the end of time, the scapular and rosary will save the world. And I found that to be true. That whenever I am dealing with a soul that converts back from the Novus Ordo or has a deathbed conversion or what have you, just has some some sort of conversion out of the Novus Ordo, one of the first things I'll ask him, were you by any chance devoted to the rosary? Did you say it? The answer is always, yeah, I did. And that's how our lady works. By means of the rosary, souls will be saved. And so that gives hope for any of your people that are listening, any of your Novus Ordo relatives. If they say the rosary, they will sooner or later come over
0: oftentimes find it helpful i may have used this this description to uh, to describe the rosary to my children you can describe it as a sword but sometimes i I like to describe it as uh, as a life preserver i mean it's sort of you know it has a it's it's a ring i mean children love to put it over their their heads um you know they wear it like a necklace but um but it's it's sort of the way our lady it's what our lady uses to to pull you back Mm -hmm. you know it's like okay you know it's not a necklace. You shouldn't wear it like that, but think about a life preserver and where you know you have to put it over your head and your arms um, to be drawn back to safety.
1: That's a great analogy.
0: I like that one actually. What, I mean, but this isn't the first time that this is this is a, where the rosary has been useful, uh, both as a sword and as a, uh, a, as a as a life preserver, as it were.
1: That good good analogy with the life preserver. Again, I'm reminded of another Bishop Sheen quote. Forgive me for quoting him so much. I know he turned novice order, but he's very quotable with these things, devotions and, and whatnot. He once said, if you want to convert somebody, you should teach them the rosary. And he said, one of two things will happen. Either he'll stop saying the rosary or he'll get the gift of faith. That's That's really how the rosary works. And those of you that are already Catholic and just struggling to practice your faith, I remember what Father McKenna, actually he just told me last night, that one of the things that he will ask them, if someone comes to him and tells him they're sort of slipping in the spiritual life or drifting away in the faith, what have you, he will ask them, well, have you persevered in your rosary? And almost always, he says, if not always, the answer is, no, they have stopped saying the rosary. And so he, the counsel is, you get back to the rosary, and that's, like you said, it's your life preserver. It keeps you, it brings you in to the fold of the faith, and once you're there, it keeps you there. And... Uh, keeps you sticking underwater from the way there.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Father, the, the Feast of the most holy rosary of the blessed virgin mary is 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 coming up um and it like like many feasts not all but many feasts it wasn't just decided well here's a free day let's let's put this here it's it's a great devotion um it is it is the the holy rosary has helped conquer heresies um here's a here's a blank space i'm like it's you know this is a ferial day let's just let's just plunk it down here that'll be great um a lot of feasts, there's a, there's a particular reason that the feast occurs on that date. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I don't think that this is, this is very clearly not not an exception to that rule.
1: Oh, yes. The history of this one is is really nice. Very interesting. I won't go into great details, but it all starts with the Battle of Lepanto. In I think it was, it was definitely the 16th century. I think the later, the latter half. In the reign of Pope Saint Pius V, the Mohammedans had declared what we call, what they call jihad, which is a sort of religious war. But only Pope Pius V really understood the threat of this, because the fight wasn't just between two nations who had were battling over land or something like that. It was a what one author described as a clash of creeds. It was a spiritual fight, a rel- a truly a religious war.
0: Well, this is a time in which the, the, uh, the uh, Mohammedans were really at the gateway of, of, of Europe. I mean, if, if they managed to, uh, to, to break through, um, I know that, that there had long been, uh, before this, um, an occupation in, uh, in the Iberian Peninsula but if I mean, now, now they're coming at Europe from uh, from its from its east, mm-hmm. and if they had managed to spill through, um, there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of resource to keep them
1: uh, to keep them out. No, not at all. The um, when they came, they would already at this point conquered a lot of the Mediterranean. So now they were not only at the at Europe's door, but most importantly, they were at Italy's door. It surrounded no. everything else. Yeah, so. I mean, they were, they were about to conquer the city of the, the Christian world, Rome, and to, to try to conquer the papal states of which Pope St. Pius V was the head uh, as the Roman pontiff. And he was also a, a leader of the papal states with his own armies and whatnot. So it was very frightening. But there's an interesting very interesting parallel between that time and our day that Islam took its opportunity to make this attack at a time when Christians were divided. It happened just after the Protestant revolution. So you have all of these apostate Catholics who converted to, or shouldn't say converted, but um, apostatized to, to Lutheranism. They were no longer part of the Catholic faith, obviously, and so would not fight along with the catholics which meant that the christian armies were divided there were the numbers were slimmer and all of that so it's it's an interesting parallel with today we're not getting into any political discussions here but notice that when another jihad is is called with isis and and all of this sort of thing that's going on now today when does it happen but at a time when the christian or catholic world true christian truly means catholic in the strict sense of the word Uh, when but they wage this jihad at a time when the the catholic world has been divided novus ordo versus true catholics and it's it's just an interesting parallel that struck me but the Turks, going back to the Battle of Lepanto, they wanted to bring Europe into a, what they called a house of subjection or submission. So they came to Italy, finally. They, the Turks had about, I heard, I read many different numbers that were significantly different. But the common opinion you might say is they, the Turks had about 300 ships, some sailed a few more, and, and thousands of men, they, they really outnumbered the Christians. At this point but during this time when when the Muslims were going to meet the Christians in battle the Pope ordered the rosary confraternities throughout Europe to do rosary processions to pray the rosary for success in this battle and at the same time when the Christians were coming in on their ship they were told to pray the rosary and that was their preparation for for this battle was to pray the rosary all these men aboard 200 ships that uh, came. They were all praying the rosary. They met the Muslims in battle and were defeated, though they were very highly outnumbered. So it says that the Muslims were defeated? Mus- yes, sorry. The Muslims were defeated by the Christians, even though the Christians were outnumbered. And the Christians were so victorious that all but 13 of the 300 Turkish ships were either captured or sunk. That And that was all due to the power of the rosary. And so that's what we're commemorating on this feast of the Most Holy Rosary of Our Lady. It was originally called Our Lady of Victory, but then later was changed to the Feast of the Most Holy Rosary. But it was instituted to commemorate this victory over the Turks. So
0: when did, it, when did it finally, I mean, I've heard it also, I think, variably called the, the Our Lady of Lepanto, which, which uh, the, the feast had, had previously been called. I mean, so the, the date on which this feast occurs is set
1: how father? Well, Gregory Thirteenth, the successor of Pius V, he changed it to the title of Our Lady of, of the Rosary, changed the date to the first Sunday of October, But then eventually that was changed back. At that time, only churches with an altar or chapel dedicated to Our Lady of the Rosary could observe this feast and celebrate Mass in honor of of Our Lady of the Rosary. So it wasn't put on the universal calendar yet? Not yet. That That was later. I want to say, please don't quote me on the year, but I think it was 100 years later it was finally put on the universal calendar by Pope Clement, the 11th, to commemorate another victory that was won against the Turks. We won't go into that one, but then it was it was put on the universal calendar. Pope Leo XIII, who was truly the, the Pope of the Rosary, he really propagated devotion to the Rosary. He actually had the Mass written, the Mass that we use today with all of its
0: propers, so it's, it's, it's on the universal calendar, and you know any altar missile is going to have this, this mass in it. I mean, let's let's just open the missile for a moment. Let's look at, at the, um, the the proper's the proper's of, of of this mass. I mean, Father, since you're the one who um, would have the book in front of you up on the altar, um, give us some sense of 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 the tone of this of of the proper's of this mass. Give us a sense of of how the of how the mass itself reflects the. I um, mean, this is this is this is celebrating a uh, ultimately celebrating a victory over heresy. I mean, how does the, the mass um, resound in terms of its in terms of the purpose of, of what the rosary is? You know, pr- of its prim- primary
1: use as a tool. Well, keep in mind that the the introit, which is Latin for "he enters," so it's the introit is sung when the priest is processing into the church. And the introit always sets the tone of the Mass or gives the lesson that the church wants to teach at this point. And the introit starts out with the words that set this whole tone for this feast. Gaudiamos. Let us rejoice in the feast of Our Lady. And then it goes on, but that sets the whole tone, one of joy because of the, the victory over heresy, over all sorts of evil, whether spiritual or temporal. and That's really the, the tone of the whole liturgy of the day. Um, the Collect, though, turning to that, the, or the prayer of the Mass, is the same prayer that we use for after the Hail Holy Queen in the Rosary, a very beautiful one, and it's praying essentially that the mysteries of our lord and our lady might be our rule of conduct our rule of life and that by observing this rule of life we might be led to eternal joy so we ask that we might imitate what these mysteries of the rosary contain and that we may obtain what they promise i.e the joys of eternal life And then lastly, I think this is all I want to really go into about the the actual liturgical text. The gospel, the reason this was chosen, I think it's obvious to most people. The gospel was chosen because it gives the original text of the rosary, the Hail Mary, for example, which was said by St. Gabriel. But also because it gives the first mystery, the first joyful mystery of the rosary, the annunciation. And so that's why this, this gospel is chosen. And so it should be our meditation for the day, for the feast. Father, the, the rosary
0: is, it gets its own feast, its its own devotion. Um, it's a devotion which has led to not only the uh, conquest of heresy, but um, staving off the conquest of whole nations. And this, is a, this is a pretty important weapon Um, In our own lives, I know we we were gesturing at this before, um, it's sometimes hard to say. Sometimes you you have only enough time to blurt out a Hail Mary. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are those times where you say, you know what, I I need to pray the rosary. Like it's something, yeah, I need to do this every day. Um, Hook or crook, I'm going to to take care of this. You treat it as a responsibility. You're going to do it. You might be tired. You might be distracted. There might be other things going on, but you're going to say it. There's always a concern, as we talked about a little bit earlier, am I saying this with profit? Is this just hollow repetition of a prayer? Is this just me saying it by rote? Um, Am I doing what I'm supposed to do in order to, say, gain the indulgences? And this is, we could do a whole show on what the indulgences Mm -hmm. for for the rosary uh, are at various times during the course of the year on a day-to-day basis. But how are we supposed to get the most out of the rosary? I mean, if we're going to invest the time, and I think this is, maybe this is an American calculus that's employed uh, and for those those of um, of our listeners who who aren't in the United States, um, we're, we're pretty sure you have your prejudices uh, against Americans. We know that you uh, think that we expect everything to be uh, to be handed to us. But in point of fact, I think that there's a human tendency to expect that if, if I'm saying these prayers, you know, how am I supposed to profit by them? And not, not well, you know, I, I expect a, a thick wallet and a, and a giant Thanksgiving turkey. Um, in terms of the spiritual profit that one would expect from 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 praying a prayer, from undertaking a devotion, how are we supposed to to get the most out of the rosary?
1: Well, using your imagination—that's that's very important. You have to be imaginative in this. So, for for example, first step is say the rosary at least part. If you can't get the whole thing, at least part. Some say it after dinner, some might divide the decades. I have to do that a lot. If you have a busy schedule, say a decade here and a decade there. That's okay to do. That's okay to do. Uh, And that's actually a very practical way because a lot of times you come to the end of a day, you say, it's been so busy, I've never had time. Well, how about the time you spend in your car on the way to work? How about walking from the car to the building when you could have gotten a decade done or at least half of a decade? Be imaginative. Some people, to get the kids interested, we do it here at St. Gertrude's when the school children recite the rosary. Have them sit for some mysteries, stand for others. For instance, stand for the resurrection or stand for the assumption and kneel for the agony in the garden. Somehow connect it with that or even walk with the children outside. Um, But be imaginative. That's your first step. And then when you're saying the rosary, vary your methods. One day you might just want to pay attention to the words you're saying. Other days you might want to just contemplate the mystery itself, all of the things that are happening externally. Our Lord in the garden, the drops of blood flowing from his forehead. Uh, In the Annunciation, the archangel descending from heaven and coming, genuflecting before his queen and uh, hailing her as, as full of grace. That's one method. Another method would be to contemplate the fruits of the mystery. What lesson is Our Lady wanting to teach us in the Annunciation? It's the humility. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. I am nothing but a servant. In the agony in the garden, it's contrition for sin. What sin did to our Lord? The crucifixion, forgiveness of our, our enemies, forgiveness of offenses received. And Bishop Dolan, I I always like this. In his sermons on the rosary, he gave a good method, and that is when you get distracted, ask questions. You're talking to Our Lady. You're really talking to Our Lady during this rosary. So ask her questions. Why did you do this? Why were the shepherds there adoring your son? What was it like? What events surrounded it? Ask questions. If you want to know something, you have to ask. And I always like that uh, that method of doing it, and then vary it. Don't always meditate the same thing, because we're humans; we're going to get bored. Change your methods. Uh, penetrate beyond the surface of what's happening to why it's happened. Why did our Why was our Lord born in the, the manger? You know why. Think about it for a while. You'll know the answers, and and many thoughts will come to your head. So vary your methods and very often I would say to do that. Be imaginative. That's, that's how you'll get much fruit out of the Holy Rosary. I know that with children, it's often
0: helpful to have pictures of the mysteries. There's always that concern that sitting there and, and having a child hold a rosary when it just seems like a beaded necklace for a very, very small child. Um, doesn't. The child doesn't understand what it's for. Uh, having a picture of the mysteries, um, you know, a little laminated card or or what have you, or a big enough picture where everybody can see from where he's, he's kneeling or sitting or standing. Um, that that's, that's been just a, my practical experience, a very, a very useful tool. I know f- from my own devotional practice, one of, one of the things that, um, now that I'm thinking about it, I w- will endeavor to do more often is I try to put myself inside the picture, you know, for the third joyful mystery, you're at the nativity. Well, I mean, you're saying be creative father. I mean, you, you you're, you're in a stable, What does it smell like? What do you hear? What does it feel like? What's the temperature like? Put yourself in the picture. Um, And I know, especially, like I said, for children, um, those types of, um, you know, what would it be like if there were animals around? You know, what noises would you hear? It's hard to imagine what it was like for Our Lady to have uh, the Archangel Gabriel be there and and, um, be there for the exchange of the two of them. You know, to be Our Lady, or to be the angel. Well, why not a fly on the wall inside the picture? Um, right. I certainly I appreciate the idea of uh, of, of using using creativity. Um, Father, any final comments? Any final thoughts on on devotion to the most to to Our Lady through the Most Holy Rosary, uh, the feast? Uh, even any final
1: thoughts on on of Vizier? I would say I think I'll just stick to the Rosary and remind everyone. I, every time I give a sermon on Our Lady or the Rosary, I remind people what the saints said, what the, the doctors of the church and theologians say, and particularly St. Thomas Aquinas, that devotion to Our Lady, and I'll add this by way of parentheses, parentheses, devotion to the Rosary is one of the greatest signs of predestination. And so everybody should be devoted to the Rosary. Say as much as you can during the day. If you can't get five decades, do at least as much as you can. But that you hold on to that. It's your life preserver. It's uh, it's what Our Lady is going to use to pull you into heaven.
0: Well, Father, let me thank you for your time. I Wish you blessed feast days. And if any of our listeners should have any questions or comments please do feel free to be in touch with us. You can reach us by email at liturgicalyear at truerestoration.org. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. We cannot do this without them. Remember that above and beyond material contributions— The most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Uh, Please think of offering a mass or even a simple Ave for the work we do the next time you pray. And if you wouldn't mind, we'd be grateful if you kept us in your rosary intentions today. For The Restoration, I'm Joshua Guncher. May God bless you.